Our scripture reading for this morning is from John 14, 21 through 29. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Issachariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you all today. I want to continue today uh, a part of the conversation we started last week as we looked at Acts chapter 9. A couple of weeks ago, just over a week ago, Nanette and I went to St. Louis to see Hamilton at the Fox Theater. We had a really great time, just a 24-hour trip, but my biggest disappointment of the weekend, I'm always going to focus on the negative, My, my biggest disappointment of the weekend was immediately after the show, we were informed that we were supposed to be sitting right next to Ozzie Smith for the show. And he called at the last minute, changed his ticket to the following night. I don't know if he heard who his seatmate was going to be, um, but I, I was that close to meeting one of my favorite baseball players of all time. And maybe more importantly, I was that close to having the opportunity to ask him to do a backflip in the aisle of a very fancy theater. It truly was a missed connection. And I am always looking to add celebrities to the list of famous people I have met, which just, if you're curious, is a very short list, but Snoop Dogg is on that list. And I use, I use met that term very loosely. We didn't have a conversation, me and Snoop. We didn't have a conversation. We, we just brushed shoulders walking through a hotel lobby. But I'm always looking to add celebrities to the list of famous people I have met. I am, after all, a product of our culture, a culture that is increasingly obsessed with the allure of celebrity. From the celebrity of decades past, which primarily, you know, your athletes, your actresses, your musicians, to the new phenomenon, the celebrity of viral internet sensations. But I think whatever, wherever our minds go, when we think about the allure of celebrity, I think it is a phenomenon that people of faith need to seriously consider to think 
critically about, both for the health of those who are being elevated to that status, but also for the health of those doing the elevating. So I want to think about this a little bit this week as we read a much less well-known story in the book of Acts. So the past couple of weeks we've been in a very popular story, Acts chapter 9, where we read about Paul's dramatic conversion and calling which propelled him into a life of incredibly fruitful ministry. Well, the story we're going to read today from Acts 14 is just a small snapshot into that incredibly fruitful ministry during his first missionary journey. So next week we're going to look at a snapshot from his second missionary journey. Today we'll be in that first one. As I read the, the book of Acts, one of the truly fascinating aspects of Paul's missionary work is his adaptability. So he is constantly moving into new geographical areas, which means new cultural and religious contexts. And as he does, he deliberately and masterfully contextualizes the good news of Jesus Christ in a way that connects with unique groups of people and makes them receptive to what he is saying. So, for instance, we see when he moves into a new city, he often begins by visiting local synagogues. And as he does, he retells the story of the nation of Israel and then talks about how he believes that Jesus Christ is the culmination, the fulfillment, or the climax of Israel's story. But that approach doesn't work everywhere. For instance, in Lystra, where today's story takes place. He knows that's not going to work. I mean, there wasn't even a synagogue in the city. Furthermore, talking to Gentiles about the story of Israel or the law of Moses or the prophets is probably going to seem rather absurd. And he recognizes this and takes a different approach. It really is masterful, as, as you see Luke telling this story. But one thing we also notice is that his charisma, his rhetorical acumen, his masterful storytelling does not always guarantee successful ministry. In fact, just before the story we're reading in Acts 14, at the beginning of this chapter, we see Paul and his traveling companions. They flee the city of Iconium because people are seeking to stone him. So we notice that in Paul's missionary work, sometimes the Jewish folks he is interacting with, sometimes they accept his message, sometimes they don't. Sometimes the Gentiles accept his message, sometimes they don't. New Testament scholar Craig Keener keenly observed, you like that? Keener keenly observed, I just thought of that. He said, one cannot predict the results of one's sowing. One cannot predict the results of one's sowing. The one you expect to respond favorably often doesn't. The one from whom you expect rejection may just be the one who is receptive. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I think it's worth mentioning again because this is a theme we see woven throughout the story being told in Acts, and I think it remains true for us as well as we continue to seek to sow seeds for the kingdom. 
We do not know which seeds we sow will germinate and take root. So we just keep sowing. We do not know which seeds are going to lead to effective results. So we just keep sowing. We trust that God is in charge of the increase, that God is growing his kingdom, and we may never see the results. Yet we keep sowing because our job is to sow. Our job is not to produce or guarantee results. So in Paul's missionary work, we see sometimes things go well, sometimes they don't. If you remember in Acts chapter 9, we saw this forecasted for Paul's life as God tells Ananias, I will show Saul how much he must suffer for my name's sake, which is true because by the end of the story we read today, we're going to see that Paul is suffering for the sake of Christ's name. The story we read next week, we're going to see that Paul suffers more, but we'll hold off for now. Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Now at Lystra. Now at Lystra. So this is the setting for what follows. Paul and his entourage have left Iconium. They've traveled south to Lystra. This is in the Roman province of Galatia, which is located in modern-day Turkey. So remember, one of the first letters Paul writes after his first missionary journey is to the churches in Galatia, the church in Lystra would have been included in that group. Lystra had an overwhelmingly Gentile population, and as a result, quite naturally, Greek mythology was a central part of their culture. So it's probably not shocking then that when the people of Lystra have an incredible encounter with God's power, through the words and the actions of the apostles, it's not surprising that they would be captivated. They are completely enthralled, sort of like Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber. Tractor beam sucked me right in. That's, they are captivated by what is going on. Verse 8, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. So similar to the story that we read back in Acts chapter 3, where Peter is involved in a similar healing of a man who could not walk, day after day was laying by the temple gate in Jerusalem. So it seems that Luke is trying to draw this connection that God is working through Paul among the Gentiles just as he had been working among, uh, through Peter among the Jews. Luke emphasizes the incurability of this man. He was crippled from birth. He had never been able to walk, had no strength in his legs at all, but as Paul speaks... Something spectacular and unexpected happens. Paul tells the man to stand up, and Luke tells us he sprang, leapt to his feet. 
the language used here is pretty dramatic. It's very energetic. It, it's not like me getting out of bed in the morning where I basically fall out of bed and stumble to the kitchen and, and begin to pump caffeine into the bloodstream trying to look alive. That's not what's going This man sprang up, leapt to his feet, and began, began walking. Verse 11, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So Luke tells us they were speaking here in a local dialect. So to this point, Paul and Barnabas aren't quite picking up what's going on until the priest of Zeus, which we'll read in a moment, brings the oxen and the garland out and, and tries to begin offering a sacrifice. And then it clicks. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. This is their response when they see this incredible miracle take place. One thing we notice, I think, is that throughout the book of Acts, miracles like the one we read here in Acts 14 do not necessarily guarantee belief. The miracles that are... Uh, accomplished are not party tricks that force faith. They don't always lead to acceptance of Christ, but what they do on some level, it seems, is that they force a decision. It's no longer possible to ignore Paul and Barnabas. If they're just talking, yeah, we can sort of push them to the side, ignore what they're saying, um, move past that nonsense, but when these incredible miracles begin to take place, it sort of forces this decision. I'm confronted with something. I need to either accept it or reject it, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee belief or acceptance. In fact, we see that in this story as Paul and Barnabas have to begin correcting some serious mistaken assumptions. It's evident based on the response of the crowd that this is clearly not what they were expecting to happen. This was an incredible, um, miraculous feat. It was inexplicable. They knew this man. They knew that walking was not in his future, barring something miraculous. So when they see him walking, they understand something supernatural has taken place. The gods, particularly Zeus and Hermes, must be meeting with us through these men that have told this crippled man to stand up and walk. Now, I think the temptation for us could be to think, well, how archaic are these people? This primitive superstition. Surely there's nothing we can learn from this story that we could apply in our enlightened 21st century context. But if we can, at least for a moment, set aside maybe some of that chronological snobbery and recognize there might be something innately human going on here in their response. 
something that perhaps we are just as likely to be guilty of even in the 21st century, just in different, maybe more subtle ways. Maybe we could think about it like this. So the people of Lystra, they see something incredible. They see this observable, demonstrable power at work, and their response is to venerate, to elevate, to put Paul and Barnabas on a pedestal. We, we need to give these guys a platform. We need to show them the respect and the hospitality they deserve because they clearly have some power. And if they have a power that helped this man out, they probably have some source of power that can help us out and solve some of the problems that we are facing. These guys must be gods. So we will follow them. How often do we fall into a similar trap? Of course, not as overt. We would never say, well, this person is a god that I am looking to to solve my problems. But how often is that the issue that is behind some of the allure of celebrity in our culture? How often do we have crises or dilemmas in our lives or, or these pressing complicated issues where we need an answer and if I can find somebody who can give me an answer in this situation preferably somebody with some notoriety if they can provide a solution for me in this situation the tendency then is to unthinkingly follow everything they say the danger is that we will not only utilize a piece of wisdom in this moment that addresses a challenge, but also that we would buy in wholesale to everything they say, thinking they can solve my problem. This is a dangerous place to be. Let's continue to read this story and, and flesh this out a bit. Verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. So Paul and Barnabas, as they begin to pick up what's going on, they quickly pump the brakes. They immediately move to put an end to these accolades, recognizing them for what they are. These are pure fantasies. So they take a moment to address their newfound biggest fans. They say, you are correct. Something incredible took place here. We witnessed it just as you witnessed it. Something supernatural happened. You have rightly discerned that. But your awe and your wonder, they're pointed in the wrong direction. 
So they capitalize on the opportunity the miracle provides, but point to the true source of power. They explicitly say, it is not us. We are just like you. We are incapable of healing the legs of a man who has never walked. It is not us, but the living God. The God who made heaven and earth and everything in them, including this man, he brought healing. To his situation. One of the things I think that is worth considering in this story is that we see Paul is given a platform to run with, and he chooses not to. Instead, he actively runs away from it, which we don't often see in our cultural context. He actively runs away from that, pointing away from himself if and when his pedestal threatens to hijack God's glory. Quite an example for us. And I think there are a couple of notable features, notable elements in their response, the response of Paul and Barnabas that invites some reflection. First of all, the response seems pretty dramatic, which... Maybe we have come to expect this by this point. They rush out, tearing their garments, and begin crying out to the crowds, wait a second, stop, what in the world are you doing? You've got it all wrong. They immediately move to stop the crowds. So perhaps in addition to not misleading the crowds into error, perhaps the immediacy of their response also prevents them from buying into the noise. Perhaps the immediacy of their response also prevents them from being swept away as their praises are sung. Sometimes I think the more we entertain notions like this, the more likely we are to begin to believe it ourselves. The more likely we are to begin to make concessions. Well, it's probably not that big of a deal. I am kind of great. They're not entirely wrong. And maybe I can use this, even though it's inaccurate, maybe I can use this to achieve good ends. And if I can, then, of course, the ends justify the means. Paul and Barnabas immediately move to stop this, give an honest assessment. We are just like you. That is a sentiment that is always absent, I think, in the allure of celebrity. Celebrity thrives on creating classes of people. And once I find myself in a particular class, then I know how to relate to the idea of celebrity. So I think there are a couple of potential dangers for us to be aware of as we grapple with this prevalent enticement of the allure of celebrity. The first one is a temptation that perhaps Paul and Barnabas felt. Even though they immediately resist it, they won't allow the people to elevate them or honor them as gods. But I wonder if there was a part of them that thought, You know, this is pretty nice. 
Not only are we not under the threat of physical violence like we were at Iconium, but we're actually receiving some honor and some respect. This is really nice. We must be doing something right to have gained the affection of these people. So let's capitalize on this momentum. Think of all we could do for God's kingdom with this kind of support. But for Paul and Barnabas, it seems the ends do not justify the means if the means are faulty. How easy would it have been to use that to justify this ease of their situation? We can use this to bring glory to God. Let's just let this ride for a moment and see where it takes us. But the reality is, as we continue reading, their popularity among the people doesn't last. And I think it rarely does last. In fact, in the very next paragraph, same chapter, verse 19, this is what we read. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, so we get a clue that something terrible is about to happen. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Admiration of the crowds, admiration of others, is always or usually going to be fickle at best. So for our health, personally, I think we would be wise to avoid putting too much stock in the applause of others when we receive it. Not because it's wrong to be honored. Not because it's wrong to be congratulated on an achievement. Of course not. It's actually a really special part of life to have hard work recognized. But this, as people of faith, is what we must remember. That we cannot, cannot find our personal worth in the honor of others. We certainly can't assume that God's opinion of us is connected to or dependent on the way others perceive us. Celebrity is not a Christian virtue. Celebrity is not necessarily a sign of God's approval. I think Paul and Barnabas remind us of that fact. They immediately recognize this for what it is. It's a fantasy. It is not true. They also recognize or experience that the honor does not last. Their meteoric rise to fame is matched only by the speed at which they fall under the weight of heavy stones. So that's the first danger I think we need to be aware of. The second danger has to do with the folks in Lystra. So there's dangers on both ends of the spectrum when we're thinking about the allure of celebrity. Those who are being elevated, those who are doing the elevating. The second danger has to do with the folks in Lystra who are watching this miracle take place. How easy is it to see something great? To see a powerful demonstration 
or to be sucked in by the allure of celebrity or the cult of personality and assume, well, this person is great. They are the source of wonder. I'm going to elevate them, put them on a pedestal. And if I can elevate them and stay really close to them, that might put me ahead at some point in the future as well. Or thinking this person is going to solve all of my issues. The danger is that we can very quickly become disciples of other human beings instead of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean we don't or can't have role models or express to others the reasons we appreciate them? Of course not. But as people of faith, we do not elevate others to the point of idolatry. And of course, our idolatry is not going to be as explicit or overt as what we read in Acts 14. But when we begin to understand our faith, our well-being, or our sense of worth, when all of that is attached to somebody else, it's a dangerous place to be, a place that I think will always lead to disappointment and disillusionment because human beings are not created to bear the burden of celebrity. When that individual's faith falters or if there is a serious failure of some kind, what's going to happen to our faith? What's going to happen to our sense of self-worth? Our understanding of how we get along in this world. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy of our praise, the only one worthy of our glory. I, I don't know that our souls are built to bear the weight of celebrity. Which I, I completely understand that's not something that I'm going to have to deal with in my life, but I think it's good to keep in mind. Furthermore, the concept of celebrity, I think, distorts a healthy understanding of humanity. As Paul says here, we are just like you. We're just like you. There's no difference. The cult of personality thrives on an assumption that we understand people first and foremost based on the class they happen to fit in. But as people of faith, we resist that. We are careful when it comes to this issue, not to put that weight on somebody else, not to find my identity or my sense of self-worth in somebody else. We also run, I think, from the enticements of notoriety and fame. Why? Because as Paul and Barnabas demonstrate in this story, we live to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ alone and to enjoy the life he gives us. Thanks be to God. I want to invite you to stand as we gather around the table of our Lord. I'm going to say a prayer for us. And then we are going to come to the table together to celebrate the life that we have in Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. And as we do, I would encourage you to remember today that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of your admiration. Jesus Christ alone is worthy of your worship. And so we pray today. 
O God, you have prepared for those who love you such good things as surpass our understanding. Pour into our hearts such love towards you that we, loving you in all things and above all things, may obtain your promises, which exceed all that we can desire, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We're going to make two lines down these center aisles. You can come to the table, take the elements on your own. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And as we do today, we remember the words of John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. Would you join me at the table today? <laughs>